Welcome to Startup Hacks, a We Global Studios podcast. We explore the stories and secret strategies that women entrepreneurs use to save time and money when bootstrapping and building their businesses. I'm your host, Fernanda Carapina, and today I'm so excited to welcome Catherine McKee. After a 15-year career building out digital commerce in pillars such as CPG, FMCG, luxury, beauty, and apparel, Catherine founded Morphology Consulting, a digital commerce consultancy that uses algorithmic structure to optimize a company's GTM for profitable exponential growth. A leader in e-commerce and an expert on systems, Catherine has overhauled the digital go-to-market for more than 50 brands and has sustainably increased clients' revenue up to 600% year over year. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, we're thrilled to have you and what a great story. And I'm so excited for our listeners to really hear all about your strategies, the way you work and how you help companies, which I think is really incredible. Um, I think we are going to have to explain some of these um, FMCG for the audience and other things as we go, but I I was going to leave that to you as we got going. So first, uh, I'm sorry. So first I'd like to um, ask you to introduce yourself and give us a little background on where you grew up and how you got started in this business. Sure, sure. Thank you. Uh, So Katie McKee, I am the founder of Morphology Consulting. Uh, We focus mostly on, or we focus specifically on digital transformation and go-to-market strategy for profitability for brands to be able to make money exponentially online. So what we see a lot of in this space are kind of tips and tricks that people have used for short-term gain that ends up giving them long-term losses. So what we do for most of our clients is overhaul their go-to-market. That's where a lot of value is lost. People often try to make up for that lost go-to-market value in trade market spend or in media. There's there's a big push in terms of being able to get your traffic through kind of quote-unquote hacking means, which is unnecessary, right? It's, it's a closed system. So if you follow the rules of the system, which are tedious and kind of boring, which I understand – you you make money. You're able to take advantage of the efficiency of the systems. So that is what we do for clients. My background is in, I've had apparel, beauty, um, FMCG is fast-moving consumer goods. So think things sold at like a Target or a Walmart. CPG is similar. It's consumer packaged goods, also things sold at a Walmart or a Target. And the luxury space. And I've been in e-commerce or digital commerce uh, for about 15 years in those various pillars. And in each of them, I was super lucky. I, I was employee number one in most of them in the digital commerce space. I had great bosses who let me build out what I needed and get the tech stacks that we needed, the teams, get people trained, be able to kind of focus processes on how to go to market in this space because it's very different from traditional retail. So I was at these wonderful companies who were great at what they did. And e-commerce or e-retail or dealing with someone like Amazon was proving to be a big problem for them. Um, so after doing that for about 13 years, went out on my own consulting. It's I love to solve problems. It's probably my biggest strength. So it's ended up being really nice to be able to take all of that learned experience and roll it forward for larger companies and also be able to apply it to startups. So we see a lot, our, our client base is about half enterprise and half startups. And startups are often pretty good at things that happen in the internet, but maybe aren't as knowledgeable about things that are happening on the other side of the space. So if they are a CPG startup, they know a whole lot about their product, but not about what Walmart wants from them. So we have kind of a 
two-pronged approach in how we help customers. Okay. So now I'm going to ask you to rewind because um, you have such an interesting career trajectory and background that I, I want people to really understand the context of of your early days. So when you um, take us back to, to college, were, were you studying computer science? I mean, how did you get started in this field? Very fair question. I got started kind of by accident. I studied finance in school. I was a good little nerd. I like <laughs> systems. I like order. And so my one of my first corporate jobs out of school, I was a financial analyst for this great indie brand, this indie beauty brand. And I remember going to the CFO in a revenue meeting and asking them why they didn't sell online, why they didn't ship really product through their own website, why they didn't have a relationship with Amazon, why they weren't optimizing orders through Nordstrom and through Saks and the different stores that they were held in. And he, bless him, was sort of like, if you don't need budget, you can do whatever you want. If you want to set it up online, go for it. And it perfectly suited my background. I'm, I'm autistic, so I'm very, I get very focused on systems and kind of processes and building out tools in this linear space. And it it's incredibly efficient if you follow all of the rules. And I think that really is where it blossomed for me is that when you look at the back end of how Amazon works, when you look at the algorithmic structure of Amazon, you also know what to give Amazon to do well on Amazon. Mm -hmm. And the same is true for Google. The same is true for the back end of a retailer that you're selling into. And the same is going to be true of your D2C site, right? So mm -hmm. there are a lot of ways in which you can set up a site wrong, or you can set it up in a way that is correct, but not for what you want. And mm -hmm. so there was a lot of focus there. And I, after that role, I started moving it into different types of companies. I was in the luxury space for a little bit in the same type of role. It was a sales finance role that had sort of turned into a head of e-commerce role. Moved into CPG, did a similar thing, was able to build out bigger teams, had bigger budgets, which is nice of CPG. Was able to build <laughs> out large teams, do these cool projects. And we found more and more holes. We found more and more attribution models that were a little bit broken or where a ton of focus was on a tactic instead of a system. And they were burning money on the tactic. The tactic would work. The tactic is true. It will work. But a whole bunch of other things needed to be true systemically first for it to work. And those things weren't getting done. And so companies and brands were spending a lot of money on things that they were getting false negatives on, which brought here. So uh, and <clears throat> I just have to say that we obviously have spoken before and I really love the work that you do and it's so unique um, and so needed because this whole area of kind of marketing, go-to-market strategy, all of that, everyone seems to have an opinion about how to optimize your success, right? right, right. Um, and uh, so I'm always curious because I'm, I'm infinitely curious about so many topics. When you say and we discussed this briefly, when you talk about um, kind of mistakes that companies have made, brands have made, or, or perhaps it's just kind of a culture that we accept that you're supposed to do certain things and it's just the status quo. But then you look under the hood and you say, okay, well, that may make sense, but that's really not going to drive your long-term success. Can you talk a little bit about kind of like the top five things you see all the time that brands do that really don't help them grow and be successful, but it's sure. maybe common practice, you know? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I think you're hitting on a really great point, which is that a lot of traditional retail has been around for a really long time and really smart people do it. And they've been doing it successfully for a long time. And digital commerce sounds similar. 
So the biggest mistake I see is people taking a practice of theirs that has worked very well in a push market and trying to translate it into the digital space, which is a pull market. So a really big one is in push, you make your product and you kind of push it down. Your salespeople talk the retailer into taking it. The retailer talks the customer into taking it. And the way that you do that is with ad spend and with promotion and trade spend, and you you create demand. That's the opposite of how the internet works. In a digital commerce space, so if Amazon is your client or if you are a D2C brand, the customer is coming to you and they're telling you what they want. So a trade spend isn't going to help you there. Making it X percent off isn't going to help you there. Or it might, you know, like you might have an email list of a whole bunch of people that will buy your product when it's on sale. Those aren't your people, mm. right? Like those, you are the CAC for that, or sorry, the co customer acquisition cost or CAC is way too high. And it shouldn't be because the internet is predicated on data. So you can look up what they want, make that. We had a, a CPG example of deodorant where there are a lot of deodorant brands where they keep coming out with new scents. And the reason that they come out with new scents is because for the linear square footage in a physical store, that churn of newness is considered very important in terms of driving traffic. So when you're physically in a Walmart or a Target, the buyers for Walmart and Target physically want you to have a new color, a new, a new way, a new interesting thing for that six-inch piece of shelving space. So brands make one up. What ends which up happening? Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, which is why the formulas always change. And you're like, why am I breaking out? <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. And it's it's push pressure. It's that they went in and they were like, hey, we're going to make vanilla for our new scent. And the buyers were like, mm, I don't like vanilla. Make lavender. There's an immediate stop there. Does anybody but the buyer want lavender? Is there a market for lavender? So what happens if you're dealing with, say, Amazon in this space is Amazon doesn't do any of that. You go to put your product live on Amazon and they will say, mm, I only need five of those. So instead of it being an MOQ and you were like, okay, I made deodorant. I made a thousand pieces of this lavender deodorant, 500 going to Walmart, 500 going to Target. Amazon doesn't do that. Amazon looks at the actual addressable market for deodorant. They come back and they tell you to the day, to the size, to the scent, what they want what their actual literal customers said to Amazon that they wanted. So what you happen or what often happens with a brand is they'll go in, they'll say, hey, we're doing lavender as the scent, you get 500. And Amazon will look at them and be like, mm, I only need three, but I do need deodorant for sensitive skin that doesn't have baking soda in it. I need 6,000 of those. Wow. And brands get a little like, well, we're not selling that. We're selling lavender. And Amazon fairly is sort of like, well, when you make it, come back. <laughs> and I think there's there's a lot of that. So instead of it being the brand in control and kind of pushing down and having levers and tactics. So I think like email being measured by open rate instead of by conversion is a fantastic one. People wanting to use localization data. It doesn't matter where I'm physically sitting right now. Like you're not going to be able to make, to make a product that is specific to my physical location right now. But that's a lot of data that you had to use in traditional retail because you didn't have actual buyer data versus digital shoppers are physically telling you to your face what they want. So if you're a D2C brand, you don't need to guess and you shouldn't be guessing. You should be scraping all of this data, talking to customers the way they want to be spoken to so that when they search for you, they can find you and they can just buy their product. You should have an addressable market of people, of physical human beings who you know want your product, right? So 
Good American is a great example of that. Good American, the denim brand from um, the Kardashians, Khloe Kardashian's yeah. denim brand. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They have a very specific body type, those sisters. They found seven or eight years ago, they found the denim market is does not cater to that body type, a larger bottom half with a small waist. Mm -hmm. So they made Good American, sold like hotcakes, could not mm. keep them in stock. They only have two fits of denim. There's one that's called Good Waist and one that's called Good Legs. They are very specific proportions to the pants, very specific. They are only for those two body types and nothing else. They make money hand over fist. Those two body types do not have a denim competitor anywhere else. Those wow. fits are not found anywhere else. And that was specifically them going through data and being like, huh, there are no pants for a small waist. And then further to that point, they got a bunch of feedback in the very beginning that their size 14s were a straight size, like extra large, basically. Their size 16 were what was considered a plus size uh, 1X. The difference between those sizes is like five inches in the waist. It's a lot. People complained online. They made a size 15. Again, mm. made money like hotcakes. People are telling you exactly what they want. And so the big mistake that a lot of brands make is they get caught up in sort of traditional retail practices. You don't need to do that. You can just ask the internet, basically. They drive your product development or should. Correct. Yes. Right. Correct. And it will drive your traffic. I mean, the more that people complain on the internet, then you know what problem you're solving on your website. So instead of paying for media and paying a ton of dollars in trade spend, you should have a very high organic rank for whatever solution you have. You shouldn't even be paying for media. You shouldn't need to. You obviously solve a problem somewhere. Your people should be able to find you. And that is the go-to-market piece. That is the, did you set this up in a way that Google can comfortably scrape you so that they can offer you as an answer without you having to pay to move up the SRP? So that, that you just teed me up for my next question, okay. which was regarding SEO. When, when we spoke, you made a comment that I thought was, um, you know, was, was so dead on, which was, if you don't have great SEO, you shouldn't be doing any social media marketing at all until you fix that. Correct. Correct. So talk about that a little bit. Sure. Anything in that space is considered punitive. So when you are buying Google AdWords, you are buying up your own mistakes. So what Google wants from you is the correct answer. It is a, it is a card catalog. They just want to know what the best microphone for podcasts are. That's it. They don't, they don't want you to lie. They don't want all the microphone makers that are not great for podcasts but have plenty of money so they can buy that slot up to buy up the difference, which is traditional advertising, right? Like a commercial is is part of the PL for a television show. The expectation is people buy the ad space and that funds the actor's salaries. It's, it's part of the model. It is not part of Google's model. Google wants you to tell them the right answer. Your go-to-market is how you do it. So your website needs to load quickly. You need to have relevant information on it that's explained well. Your pages need to be laid out, <clears throat> excuse me, correctly. It needs to be scrapable and indexable in a way that Google cares about or Bing or Yahoo or whoever else. The fact that you can buy up ad space, you are buying up the difference between whatever your score is now and whatever correct is. So if someone is 100% correct, you can't bid on it. It won't come up. The words aren't available. You wouldn't be able to bid on those terms. When you are bidding on terms, the number one factor in that is what your organic rank is against those terms. So if your go-to-market is bad, all of your media will be incredibly expensive because the internet already knows that you're likely not the right answer. 
So you might be, to be fair, but if they can't tell from scraping your website, then it's going to always be very expensive to buy that space. And the same thing is going to be true for social media. So that score is what goes into your Facebook ad buys. It's what goes into your Instagram ad buys. It goes into your LinkedIn ad buys. All of these underlying, are you doing what you say you're doing, impacts everything else that you purchase. So it fundamentally, you can't buy up the negative space. But also, you don't, you don't need to. If you went to market cleanly, you wouldn't have to pay for media at all. So why is that? So when you look at a search engine results page, it is ranked against how close to correct to the query it is. So if I go in and I query digital commerce consultant, my own consultancy should come up fairly quickly because very specifically, that's what we do and that's how the page is structured and that's how it's laid out. So for Google, it's really easy. They look for a digital commerce consultant. There are plenty of them, I'm sure. So they'll turn around and they'll say, who is the most digital commerce consultant? So back when Google was a Boolean search and it was just how many times is that word repeated, that underlying algorithmic structure is still there. Like how close to correct are you? When you are owning what your space is, when you are, when your messaging is on point, when your pages load quickly and are clean and you describe them well and they're easy to shop and they're navigable and they're secured sites and you have the important information on the upper left and the least important information on the bottom right. And when you, when you structure, when you're optimized for a search engine, it can give you your score quickly and easily. That is what's at the top of the search engine results page. Now, you can buy ad space. That's also at the top of the search engine results page, unless someone is a 10 out of 10. So there are 10 factors that go into a search engine result. If someone is a 10 out of 10, there's no ads available. You can't buy them because they already have a correct answer. If someone isn't, if a whole bunch of us are eights, then all of us eights can bid on that extra two points to move us up the page. So in other words, the more expensive, as you said, the more expensive the ad buy, just right. the worst job you've been doing, right? <laughs> kind of, kind of. Pretty much. Also, you're being, you're being punished appropriately. Yes. <laughs> I yeah. guess. The question is, how do you know, um, you know, for our listeners out there who are wondering, you know, gee, I wonder if what I'm paying is a lot more than I need to be paying. Like, how do you gauge that given where you should be at? A quick one is if it's anything over than about 20 cents, you're paying too much. If it's a word that you should own. So if it's something that everyone on earth is bidding on, like the word jeans, you you would never own that. So that's going to be expensive. But anything that like is your brand name, anything that is a trademarked word of yours, anything that is a specific piece of the niche that you own, if you're paying anything more than 20, 25 cents, you are, you're being punished. Mm-hmm. So then you recommend a complete SEO redo? I would recommend taking a look at your website because I think a lot of people think of SEO as keywords and it's not. It's how fast did your page load? It's do you have a secure checkout? It's how many tabs do you have on your site that are the same thing? So we run into people, we have a lot of clients who will do pages in the wrong order. Their homepage will be about them, the owner of the brand. And you're like, well, do you sell you or do you sell sneakers? If you want to be known for selling sneakers and that's where your traffic comes from, then the about you page doesn't need to be on there and sneakers need to be on the first page because the search engine is reading that like a book and the first page is the most important thing to them. So 
what you rank for needs to be on the first page and it needs to be up high and it needs to be scrapable. So there's a lot of that. There's a lot of people talking about categories instead of products that they sell. They're talking about charitable giving instead of consulting services that they sell. There's a lot of make sure that the information that you're giving to the search engine is clean and is easy to read and is easy to understand. And it's, so that's obviously all, all that you've captured um, so far is everything you do through morphology. Yes, correct. And is there a specific, um, I know that obviously you've done a lot of work in luxury and beauty, consumer products, et cetera. Um, is that your sweet spot or do you work in all different areas? That's a good question. Uh, what do we get a lot? We work specifically in systems. So we are very much in the, what tool do you want to use? So deep expertise in Amazon, in Google, in platforms like Magento or Shopify. We do a lot with agencies. We do a lot with larger brands. So the actual product is mostly agnostic to the process, but it is very much down to, are you adhering to the system that you want to use and or should you use something else? Okay. Now I have to ask you my favorite topic, which is what are your top three hacks that you've used um, at any point in terms of your um, kind of entrepreneurial life that you feel save you time, money, or help you gain a competitive edge? Yes. Great. Um, and I love this. I was actually talking to a startup that we were advising this morning about the first one. And the first one is expert networks. I feel like a lot of us, I'm a founder, I know a lot of founders, I think most of us think of them as for banks or for investors or for big companies, but there are a bunch that are smaller ones that are specifically like question-based. So instead of an expert like a lawyer or an accountant, because obviously you should probably have those, but things where you need to understand cross-border shipping costs for China in February, you could Google all of that. You could look it up yourself. And I think for founders, in general, they're probably smart people, really driven, really good at problem solving, but it's going to take you a really long time. And so this was a long struggle for me, but one that I finally got over is that the time valuation in money of what I was spending on Googling things when I could go on Superpeer and spend $200 and ask a shipping expert what type of container I need was just immeasurable in the amount of time that I saved and the amount of money because I was not doing I would not ship a product for a month while I waited to figure out what kind of container I needed, which was nuts. And it was been, particularly for the startups that we advise and for my own, it's been so eye-opening that it's, it's not expensive. You only need to do it once or twice, probably, for whatever your one big pressing question is. And it's, they're never more than a couple hundred dollars. I think they're genius. I think everyone should do them. And it's called Super Pure. Superpeer is the one that I like. It's an easy one, um, but there are a bunch of them. GLG is one. GuidePoint is one. Um, you can probably find them in your own networks if you have them kind of going through. I think lawyers probably end up doing this a lot, like trademark people. But I've also seen a bunch of people in like packaging where you can be like, hey, can I pay you $300 and you can tell me what polymer to use? Like it's, <laughs> it's invaluable. I think they're amazing. And so what other hack would you throw out there? The other hack that I really love is around sleep. So I struggled with sleep for a really long time. didn't sleep well, had like calf cramps, all of this stuff. And a holistic friend of mine told me to start taking magnesium. So magnesium is what your body uses to recover from stress. So like most founders, I lead a fairly stressful life, right? You have a lot going on, a lot of, a lot of balls in the air. For the way that we consume magnesium through food is meant – to sustain us through like one stressful event, like we were still cavemen. 
because <laughs> our lives <laughs> because our lives aren't like that and we aren't sort of like taking it all in one swoop you end up never being able to eat enough food that contains magnesium to keep your magnesium stable in your body and that means that you won't be able to sleep you won't be able to fall asleep you'll have restless sleep you'll get the charlie horses all of that stuff but you can take magnesium before bed like a teaspoon of it and it sleep like a baby it's good for cell turnover you don't wake up it reduces anxiety. I think there are a lot of them. And I, the third one, which you and I talked about last time, are adaptogens. Adaptogens are the most wonderful thing, and I cannot sing their praises highly enough. So adaptogens are um, natural. They're plants. They come in herbal form, and I think from roots and from, from, from some fungi. And they are supplements that you can take that are also related to stress. And where adaptogens fit in in your stress response is – in the middle. So the way your body handles stress is you recognize the stress, then you have like a resistance period. And the resistance period is where you build up the chemicals in your body that are dangerous for you, like cortisol. And then you have the exhaustion period after. Adaptogens bolster your body during the resistance period. And you can take different adaptogens for different things. So there are ones for for sexual wellness. There are ones for beauty and kind of like cell turnover. But the ones that are amazing and the ones that I take all the time are for elevated brain function, like mental acuity, general calm, and general muscular health. And those ones are ashwagandha and reishi, and they, they're incredible. They work super fast. It takes probably 20, 30 minutes for them to hit the bloodstream, and it is the most clear, calm focus you have ever felt. There's There are no jitters. There's no calm down. There's no side effects that I've ever seen, I guess, ask, ask a doctor if you're worried about that. Um, They're, they're incredible. I could not say them highly enough. And it's so good for focus. It's so good for solving problems, for not letting your brain jump around, for looking into a project and just staying sunk into that project. They're, they're really incredible. And I cannot, could not say them highly enough. And is there a brand that you would recommend? I do. Moon Juice. Moon Juice, Brain Dust, and Spirit Dust are my two favorite. Okay. We're all going out to buy that stuff in bucket (laughs) loads, quite frankly. (laughs) (laughs) You should. It's amazing. Um, Oh, my gosh. I can't believe we're nearly out of time now. So one of the things that I wanted to do was give you an opportunity to provide um, a contact or your website, LinkedIn, whatever you want to share with our audience so that they can learn more about your business or if they want to reach you directly. Awesome. Yes. Uh, So our website is morphologylabs.com. Do you want me to spell it? Please. M-O-R-P-H-O-L. O-G-Y-L-A-B-S dot com. Fabulous. Well, it was awesome to have you on the show. I am so excited to um, try some of these. I'm going to call you next week and uh, tell you what the impact was. Amazing. So um, thank you again. I appreciate it so much being on the show and answering all our questions. Yes, it's been a delight. Thank you. You're welcome. So tune in next week for more Startup Hacks. We have another great show you won't want to miss on the secret female founder strategies that will save you time and money when building your business. This podcast is brought to you by We Global Studios, the first startup innovation studio and digital do-it-yourself startup platform for women entrepreneurs around the world. For more information on our guests, this podcast, and many other female founder programs, please visit weglobalstudios.com. I'm your host, Fernanda Carapina, and we will see you next week.